Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, remembering the political legacy and life of former Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson. If you're just in there because you don't like the other side and it doesn't matter what they say, they're wrong, and they don't like you and whatever you say, you're wrong, you'll never solve any problem. You'll never have any agreement. So I was, what I was trying to point out was nothing ever eventually happens one way or another, good or bad, unless people come together and s- settle on what they will agree to and save the other stuff for another day. Also, one-on-one with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. One of the things I noticed when I came into the CDC is that we were not actually collecting vaccine data by race and ethnicity. We can't measure it if we can't collect it. We're now collecting it well. All that's just ahead. But first, this thoughts and remembrances continue regarding former Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson. His death was announced Sunday. He was 76 years old. Governor Brian Kemp said in part of of Isaacson, Georgia has lost a giant, one of its great greatest statesman and a servant leader dedicated to making his state and country better than he found it, close quote. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms called Isaacson a friend and, quote, a true statesman with a servant's heart. He was always attentive to the needs of our communities. While our state has lost a man of honor, he leaves an indelible example of servant leadership we should all work to emulate, close quote. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman not only ran against Isaacson, but considered the fellow longtime politician a friend. And CEO Thurman joins me now. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Good afternoon, Rose, and thank you so much for the invitation. You know, in that statement, you said, quote, Johnny was a pragmatic, thoughtful, bipartisan leader who was never afraid to take difficult positions, even if they didn't align with political affiliation. And CEO Thurman, that's been said a lot by folks from both sides of the aisle. Senator Isaacson, Johnny Isaacson was an amazing uh, public servant, uh, respected by all people, regardless of political affiliation. I had the honor of serving with him in the Georgia General Assembly, uh, opposed him in 2010 for the U.S. Senate. Uh, He crushed me (laughs) thoroughly, and we kept and maintained a friendship throughout the remainder of his life. You mentioned that 2010 uh, Senate campaign. You said he crushed you. I imagine you all had some good, lighthearted humor about that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We discussed it. and uh, But he was a, a very honorable opponent. Uh, he and his lovely wife and my wife, we all maintained a friendship after that. And really, though, my relationship began as a house member. When I came to the General Assembly, there were only 25 Republicans uh, in the Georgia House of Representatives, about 28 African-American Democrats, 
He was chair of the Republican caucus. I was chair of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. And I modeled uh, my chairmanship after Johnny Isaacson and the way he interacted with, debated, and challenged Speaker Murphy. So he was a role model in terms of uh, his political acumen, but also with the way he was dignified and respectful of all opinions. And CEO Thurman, that's what I want to talk about also as we reflect on Johnny Isaacson, because much has been said that that type of bipartisan approach has been it's been missing for a long time. Not here, just only in Georgia, but even at the national level in Congress. And what do you think that is and why would the, the spirit and the, the approach that folks like Johnny Isaacson had and John Lewis and, and Ted Kennedy, why that seems to have fallen? Well, primarily because we have leaders who are focused on the next election as opposed to the next generation. The roles, history cast the final ballot. And the reason we're celebrating the life and legacy of John Isaacson is because he stood for principle. Uh, he loved country more than party. And that's why he is being celebrated and will be remembered. Those who seek more expedient political goals and objectives, quite frankly, will not have received and will not receive the outpouring of love that someone like John is receiving. So oftentimes, whether or not it's expedient as it relates to the next election, once you look to the next generation, to history, that is ultimately where you receive uh, your accolades and your remembrance. When can you recall, CEO Thurman, maybe the, one of the last conversations you had with Senator Isaacson? Well, we talked often. Uh, I, I called him. Uh, and let me tell you, I know exactly when it was. Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, in 2017 and 18, my alma mater, Payne College in Augusta, mm -hmm. Georgia, uh, while he really he was, he was still serving, gotten, had gotten in financial trouble. I also served as chair of the board of trustees at Payne. Mm -hmm. And I called up Senator Isaacson to ask for his assistance. And what he did was, uh, he used his name to assemble a group of business leaders, primarily white business leaders in Augusta, Georgia, hosted a luncheon and helped raise money uh, for Payne College uh, while he was still serving. So his support of Payne College was really the last project we worked on. And despite the fact that we had opposed each other in 2010, mm -hmm. he volunteered and was the host and the primary spokesperson for Payne College in Augusta, Georgia. And you do love your beloved pain. CEO Thurman, how will you remember your friend, Senator Johnny Isaacson? I can best remember Johnny Isaacson by emulating uh, him, not just celebrating who he was, but using some of those principles every day in my political and personal life, uh, not judging people uh, just because of political affiliation, but having the courage to reach across the aisle uh, to transcend racial barriers, and to ultimately try to do what's best for Georgia and for the United States of America. The best way to honor him is to emulate principles and ideas and the way he conducted himself uh, within public service. Mm. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Honored to be here today. I want to bring in now veteran politics reporter and WABE host emeritus, Dennis O'Hara. Dennis, welcome. 
Hey, Rose, it's great to be back with you. Thank you so much, Dennis. You know, and you just heard the conversation with CEO Michael Thurman from DeKalb County. So much is being talked about this Isaacson way. And at the core of that was his ability to work across party lines. And that was so evident in his longtime friendship with Representative John Lewis. Yeah, uh, they worked together often in ways and at times that nobody knew about. They both said that. Um, And I think at the core of it was something that I talked to CEO Thurmond and Johnny Isaacson about um, when I retired as host of Morning Edition. um, I deliberately picked those two men to talk to as my last scheduled interviews. And the theme of those interviews was listening. Mm, I remember that. And CEO Thurmond uh, and Johnny Isaacson, Senator Isaacson, both talked about listening as the core of what a public servant and anyone who aspires to leadership should be able to do. And uh, they, they said, you know, you don't always think of that. But that was at the core of Johnny Isaacson's success, I think. And CEO Michael Thurman is still with us. And if there's anyone that could have brought Michael Thurman and Johnny Isaacson together, it's you, Dennis O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I want to also get both of your hey, thoughts. Hey, Mr. CEO, how are you? Hi, Dennis. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear yours. You know, I want to also get your thoughts on this because when we spoke last month about the death of another former U.S. Senator, Max Cleland, and like Cleland, Isaacson was a voice for veterans as he chaired the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Dennis, I'll start with you. That was so important for Isaacson. It was hugely important, and it's interesting uh, that you should mention Senator Cleland, who headed the VA in the Carter administration. I'm old enough to remember doing interviews with Senator Cleland about the frustrations and the problems that he faced as head of the VA. And then years later, when Senator Isaacson chaired the Veterans Affairs Committee in the Senate, asking him some of the same questions about the same frustrations and challenges and problems with the VA. And Senator Isaacson was able to get legislation passed that uh, opened up more private care options to veterans who might not be able to get to a VA facility so easily. That was something he was very proud of, but he was also, again, frustrated by the continuing problems Mm -hmm. and sometimes scandals at the VA. So that was something he worked on right up until the end of his time, and it meant a great deal to him. CEO Thurman, I want to get your thoughts on this, because one way to describe Isaacson's political career was one of ups and downs. And you talking about that that thrashing that you took in 2010. But many thought that he might seek another run for Georgia governor uh, after Sonny Perdue. And this was in, in 2010. But he opted not to. Did he ever talk to you about maybe some of those 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 downs, those political downs? Well, it's just that, you know, failure is not final and neither is success everlasting in the political sphere. And he always encouraged me. I remember Johnny sitting in my law office when he ran against Zell Miller. Uh, he came to visit me and uh, stayed in my office about three hours trying to get me to endorse him instead of Zell. <laughs> uh, we, that would have been news. Yes, uh, it would have that been. Friendship, that, that, that friendship continued. When he was chairman of the state board of education, my sister was on the state board. Mm-hmm. And he always joked with me, 
that my sister probably voted for him instead of me doing that 2010 race. And, and I've actually asked my sister about it, and she just never had given me a clear answer. So I don't know. Uh, but uh, it's it just an amazing. Uh, but let me tell you this, and Dennis and, and, and Rose, I think that we are at a period in our history COVID-19, Delta, Omicron, you can't defeat this from a political perspective, a partisan political perspective. What America is crying out for is leadership like John Isaacson, like Max Cleveland, John Lewis. It Only that type of leadership will lead us out of this morass. And so I don't think that the type of the Isaacson way is, all, is dead. I'll be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. I think we're back at a point in our history that's calling for leaders who can rise above just partisanship and, and, and the next election and to begin to think about the best interests of this state and our nation. Dennis, I want to give you the final word because you've had so mm -hmm. many interviews, one-on-ones with Johnny Isaacson. You're always great at summing up the careers of folks, these long-timers here, especially in Georgia politics. What do you say about Johnny Isaacson? I think, wow, uh, I think probably the greatest tribute to his effectiveness and his success is that there are many ways in which it happened that we will never know. That that idea of listening, that idea of staking a position, don't forget this was a partisan Republican mm -hmm. who also reached across the aisle. I mean, you, you can do both, as CEO Thurman knows. Um, and he was able to get things done and sometimes undone. There's one famous one, you were talking about Veterans Affairs a moment ago, when President Trump fired David Shulkin mm -hmm. as VA chief. He had been VA chief under President Obama. Um, and um, President Trump wanted to appoint White House physician Ronnie Jackson mm -hmm. to succeed him. Jackson ran into some allegations of misconduct. Isaacson told me, and it was very quiet. All, I didn't ask him if, or I, did, I asked him what he thought. And he just said, well, they didn't tell me that they were going to appoint Ronnie Jackson and do this. It happened in one of those famous Trump tweets. And that's all he said. They didn't tell me. And then he went on about what a great job David Shulkin did and how he wished he was still the head of the VA. So that was a very quiet Isaacson way of saying, I really don't like this. Anybody else would have said it in capital letters. Mm -hmm. But then he worked very quietly to get Ronnie Jackson's nomination withdrawn. And then he supported the nomination of Robert Wilkie, who was confirmed as head of the VA under then President Trump. So Johnny Isaacson's work, much of it was visible, but perhaps much more of it, the most effective work was invisible. And that's how those bridges got built. And mm -hmm. um, he just personally, he was always, uh, as the CEO knows, and as you know, Rose, mm -hmm. He would always ask you how you were doing. Yep. I mean, it might not have been on the air, but he would ask about, uh, you know, my family, my wife, trips we took, um, 
you know, and it was because he was genuinely interested in, as he often said, friends and future friends. Mm. Veteran politics reporter and WABE host emeritus Dennis O'Hare, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to be with both of you. Now, Johnny Isaacson didn't bother to focus on his legacy. He told me that when we spoke nearly two years ago to this date in his office as he's as he was preparing to leave the life of an elected official. Senator, what do you want Georgians to know about your commitment to serving uh, on behalf of the state? Just tell them that when I ran for office for the first time, everybody told me I was crazy because I ran as a Republican. And when I got elected to office, I was the only Republican in the state to Mm -hmm. be the Democratic incumbent. Mm -hmm. But I, I tried to run and earn the confidence of the people. And then as I served, I tried to do what they wanted so they would want to send me back. Now, I didn't ever set a goal to be in office 45 years. I never. If somebody said, you're going to do that, I said, no, I'll never do that. But one thing happened. I'm, I'm, everybody who beat me ended up choosing me to replace themselves. I mean, Sal Miller beat me for governor and then turned around. He, he left the Senate and I replaced him. And Newt never, got, never thought I was worth much for a long period of time. So when I, I replaced him I, when he left the House. So if you really look at it, my, my people that you would have thought I had a bad relationship with, I ended up having a great relationship. Yeah. Newt, I had a great relationship. And, and uh, so too was Zell because I just always tried to find that common ground and look the other way at the past. You can't change the past. And one, one thing I am, I think, good evidence of, you can change the future. You can make a change in the future if you try. And sometimes little changes become great big changes, but you got to make them first, and they're hard. And finally, what will you miss about Washington, D.C.? Um, I like everything I do. I, I, I've got a little bit of historian in me, so working in a place like the Capitol is just, a, for me, a, a trip and a really a great thing to do. Um, I love people, and, and you never lack for people who need help. Most of them justifiably, but even some who don't, just trying to get you to bail them out. But you're there, that's what you're there to do is to help them. And I love my state and my city. I just, uh, I've become friends with just about everybody I've dealt with in the city for the many years I've been here and become good friends with people, leaders like Andy Young and leaders like John Lewis and leaders like Ivan Allen and leaders like uh, others that have been elected in the city. And the, not only just the city government, but the ARC and all mm-hmm. those type of things. I've just enjoyed working on, and Shirley, working her, she saved our water. Yeah. You really look at our, our leaders, they've all saved something. They saved our water, and, and uh, you know, Kasim saved us a few things. Everybody saved us something, mm-hmm. and that's what let's serve public service is about, saving things. that are worth saving and making them better. One of those elected officials that you mentioned, and I'll honor their remaining uh, anonymous, but said to me, you know, Rose, if someone worries about their legacy, they don't have one. Yeah. Do you th- think about your legacy? I don't need one. Yeah. You know, people. the, the one reason my name on my, my bumper sticker was just Johnny, because everybody knew who that was. I didn't have yeah. to tell them where Isaacson was the other one. And so that's all I worry about. Once people know who you are and what you're doing, that's all the, I don't need a legacy or a statue or a, sports event or anything like that, or a book. I'm not, I don't have a book in me. I'm not a good writer, but I do have a lot of love in me, and I'm happy to work with somebody who loves the city and loves public life and loves America and helping them make it a better place. 
that's the one good thing about being like me and having a little bit of an affliction going into my senior years. I've got a few things I can't do. I've got a lot of things I can do now. I'll have more time to do, and I'll take him. But all of them will involve taking care of the state I love and the people I love. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Researchers at the University of Texas released a report forecasting different outcomes related to the potential surge of the Omicron variant. Well, here was one takeaway, quote, Omicron could lead to the largest health care surge to date unless measures are taken to slow the spread, close quote. For example, researchers report one scenario that projects a wave that peaks on February 3rd of 2022. That means new infections more than two times higher than the January peak of this year. Hospital admissions, 1.8 times higher. Deaths, more than 1.2 times higher also than January of this year. Now, perhaps that kind of news was not lost on our next guest. Dr. Rochelle Walensky was appointed director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention by Joe Biden even before he officially took office. Now, she began the post as the 19th director of the CDC, headquartered here in Atlanta, on January 20th of this year. And I'm not sure just how many interviews, news briefings, and press conferences Dr. Walensky keeps track of, but we added closer look to that total because we spoke just a couple of days ago. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Delighted to be with you, Rose. You know how many interviews and press conferences and media briefings? I could not even tell you. (laughs) I could not even tell you. (laughs) Let me ask you this, because I want to begin with this latest report from the University of Texas at Austin, which gives numerous scenarios regarding Omicron. But here's what we do know. The consensus is there will be a surge and potentially twice the spread, the rate of the Delta variant. Your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, so maybe what I'll tell you is what we do know right now. Right now, we're at about 120,000 cases a day. Um, and we peaked this past week at, um, we marked 800,000 deaths, which is truly striking. What we know right now is that most of those cases are Delta, and we know what we need to do to protect ourselves from Delta. But the University of Texas study that you cited is a really important one, and we're learning more and more every single day. So last week, we've started to see you know, over 35 states that have um, demonstrated Omicron, and that number is increasing. We've seen from other countries doubling times of the Omicron variant of um, less than two days. And so the projections that are coming from from the University of Texas and from other modeling groups may very well demonstrate increased cases of Omicron and that Omicron will, in fact, be the dominant variant in the weeks ahead. Well, let me get your thoughts on this, because we went through this with the Delta variant. And I want to talk about messaging. When these new variants come online and there's so much information coming, not only from your agency, but from other institutions, can you understand how people get confused or they're not sure what information is adequate or the information changes. 
What is your advice to folks to understand how to look for credible information when it comes to this? Yeah, and this is really important. Part of the responsibility I feel in in my responsibility in leading the CDC is to follow the science and as the science emerges, as new data emerge, to update that science. So we have seen different science emerge when we had the alpha variant, when we had the delta variant, and now when we have the Omicron variant, and the science is evolving and we're learning more every single day. And so um, I recognize the challenges in how confusing that may be for the public. But what I would say is find yourself what you believe to be your credible source, whether it be the CDC, whether it be the AMA, whether it be your pediatrician or your healthcare provider or your pharmacist, and stick with that source to give you updated information. And ideally, I hope it is all really streamlined as the same information. I'm going to ask you a question I've asked so many researchers, scientists, physicians, everybody involved here. What questions do people pull you aside and ask you? You know, in my personal world, I get a lot of questions about my a certain situation. My son's getting married, and uh, were we really going to be able to have this wedding in February? Or my grandma is, you know, I really want to see her. Is it safe for me to go see her? Um, So I get a lot of the one-off scenarios that our guidances are not intended to speak to any individual one-off scenarios. So I get, I do get a lot of that. I also get a lot of what do we really know about Omicron in this moment? Mm-hmm. Um, or what do we really know about the science in this moment? Are you still having conversations trying to convince people to get vaccinated, Dr. Walensky? You know, most of my immediate friends and family are vaccinated. Um, but I will also tell you that I have been known to make individual calls. If a friend of a friend will say to me, will you talk to my friend? Because my friend is trying to get pregnant and they're worried that the vaccine may not be for them. I'm happy to actually make those. I do think a lot of what we need to do, there is a certain percentage of the population right now that is not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And people say, how do you talk to them? And my answer to that is you have to listen first. You have to actually listen to what their concerns are and what do they have to say and really tailor the message to what those concerns are. I want to go back to Omicron for a moment, because if we're talking about mitigating the spread, here's what we know is key. Getting the unvaccinated folks vaccinated and then now the booster shots. How hopeful are you that between now and that February date that the researchers at the University of Texas revealed that there can be a significant push to get folks vaccinated and then other folks get the booster shot. Yeah, I think it's really important. And we're spending a lot of time and energy. We're boosting people at the rate of about a million a day. So we're seeing more and more people get boosted. And we're giving first doses at a rate of about a half a million a day. So we're seeing more of that as well. But what I will also say is um, we know that the more mutations a variant has, the more immunity you need. And for some people, they may well need more than even just their booster shot, which is why we're really hammering home the message now that even if you're vaccinated in boosted. There's a lot of disease out there. And we're really asking people to wear a mask to not only protect themselves, but to protect others. And that's a hard message in this very moment. Well, and speaking of messages at the time of this interview, it's being reported Pfizer revealing its two shot vaccine did not perform, as they put it, adequately in children two to five. They now will test a three dose series for official authorization. Any concerns on your part here? 
You know, I was really encouraged because the safety data were there and they demonstrated real safety in what they saw. Um, we want to make sure that it's going to be working as well. You know, while I'm disappointed, I, I, you know, right now we're seeing that we need that boost. We need it for everyone over the age of 18. We strongly recommend it for everyone over the age of 18. And so am I surprised in this given moment that they're going to need three doses in the younger kids? I'm not that mm-hmm. surprised. You know, you mentioned the nation surpassing the 800,000 COVID-19 deaths. And listen, you and I both know that politics has played a role in this from the beginning, and it's two different administrations. But through your lens, Dr. Walensky, could some lives have been saved if our nation had a different response when all this started? I think um, we need to come together and recognize that the common foe is not one another, but the virus. There was just a modeling exercise that occurred from Yale University that said that because of vaccines, we've saved 1.1 million lives and probably 10.3 million hospitalizations. And without them, we might have been in a situation where we had over 20,000 deaths a day. So I think if we came together and cared for one another, rather than caring for only ourselves, that we would be in a different place. There is no question that this is a difficult virus and it has taken hold. But I think that we need to recognize that um, we need to protect ourselves and our neighbors. We know the risk for the unvaccinated, but what other groups are concerning for you? You see this data every day. So certainly, um, the risk of death for the unvaccinated is 14 times higher than the vaccinated. And we're starting to see in our nursing home population that the risk of infection for the unboosted is about 10 times higher. Mm -hmm. So we're really asking people to get boosted for that very reason. But then, of course, there's the vulnerable populations who have always been at increased risk of this disease, our elderly population, our immunocompromised population, those with comorbidities, diabetes, heart disease, liver disease. And so those are really the populations that we're really trying to hammer home, not just get vaccinated, but get yourself boosted because, you know, you may get infected and we want to make sure you have as much protection as you need. Here in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has said that now, and he's been saying this for a few months now, I want to be fair, that it really is now up to local health departments and local communities to help spread the information for folks to get vaccinated because he wants folks to talk to whether it's their faith leaders or their primary care physicians, folks in the community, because the messaging coming from Washington or from a national level doesn't seem to be getting through. How key is it then that at the local level here that there is a a bigger push to get folks vaccinated from those within the community, those health care providers that look like folks that may not normally look like the ones that are being that that are at high risk for this. That's got to be key. It it is absolutely key. I recognize that I can provide this advice and I can do so on TV or on radio, but I am not known. I'm foreign to many people. And what you really want to do is go to your, the person you've been getting care from that you've been trusting the entire time and your entire life. And one of the things I think that's really important and that I'm, I'm working towards is bolstering our public health infrastructure in order to do that in the future, because we need a public health workforce that is as diverse and expertise as the communities that they serve. And if we had more of that workforce, then maybe there'd be more people out there who had been sending that message all along. I want to shift for a moment, talk about you, if you don't mind. Uh, On your first official day as CDC director, you said in a statement, I'm going to quote you here, better, healthier days lie ahead. But to get there, COVID-19 testing, surveillance and vaccination must 
accelerate rapidly, we must also confront the longstanding public health challenges of social and racial injustice and inequity that have demanded action for far too long, close quote. So I want to ask you this, then. Can you pinpoint how this pandemic is addressing those health care related inequities? And are we seeing positive outcomes? Yeah. Is it too early to, to predict this? I think history books will tell this, but I can tell you we're working hard towards it. So one of the things I noticed when I came into the CDC is that we were not actually collecting vaccine data by race and ethnicity. We can't measure it if we can't collect it. We're now collecting it well. And I'm really proud to say that among communities that are fully vaccinated, there's the same rate among Hispanic communities and black communities and white communities. So we have made huge strides, not only in demonstrating the data, but in making sure that those communities have same vaccination rates. Um, We're doing that by putting vaccines in FQHCs, by putting Mm -hmm. vaccines in pharmacies and making it very easily accessible by putting them in rural communities and doing so there. The other thing um, that I really want to say is to speak about this public health workforce, because if we have a workforce that comes from these communities, you will have trusted people. And that is everything from the community worker to the genomic epidemiologist Mm -hmm. coming from and trusted by the communities that they serve. And that is really going to be the work. And I think the legacy of what this pandemic will lead to. I'm also recalling an article that focused on how you would need to restore trust and quote the world's foremost public health agency where health officials have been repeatedly contradicted and criticized by President Trump throughout the coronavirus pandemic. First, has that been the case? Do you feel like you've had to push reset and get the public to understand that they can trust information coming from the CDC? I came in at a difficult time. Um, I came into an agency that has been working really hard and tirelessly, and I have had the incredible honor of serving as the director of um, 15,000 people who stay up nights to protect public health. And so um, my work here is not done, but that has been my entire charge um, since I got here. What's been challenging for you? I think it's been such an incredible scientific endeavor that we have three vaccines that um, we can use to protect the public in such a short period of time. It's been challenging that um, not everybody has seen those as the mechanism by which we get out of this pandemic. That has been a challenge and I wish we had more community coming together um, and that there were more people vaccinated so we'd be in a better place. Did you have any hesitation about taking the leadership role at the CDC? No. I I will say a a very wise mentor once said to me, if you're not a little scared of your next job, it's not big enough. Suffice it to say, it was big enough. (laughs) So so I I was, you know, obviously a lot nervous that I, I wanted to make sure I did right by this agency. But if somebody calls on me to take on this task in the moment of a pandemic, the answer was never going to be no. What has been some of the best advice you've received? If you want to share who gave it to you, please do. You know, I get a lot of support from my dinner table. My family's been incredible. I've gotten a lot of advice from a lot of different people. And and I will say I've been truly blessed that people have come to me and said, you know, if you ever need me, I'm here for you. But really, a lot of it is talking to people, names names are of people you might never, ever know or hear of, but um, that have really just given me sound advice. Are you one who will admit to misteps 
whether it's COVID related or with anything in the CDC? And how do you handle um, that? I try to learn from this has been a steep learning curve for the country. It's been a steep learning curve for me. Um, and I, I'm happy to learn from that curve and to make sure that um, as I handle things the next time that I feel like I've learned from things prior, whether it was my doing or others. We know the pandemic, obviously, as you mentioned, when you came in, that was foremost at the top. Some other related priorities for you all. Yeah, so obviously the pandemic has taken so much of our time and energy. The public health infrastructure we've talked about, not just in the workforce, but in data modernization, in our laboratory infrastructure to make sure that we really have a good public health workforce and laboratory and data moving forward, because that has been among our Achilles heel, certainly health equity. And that um, has, we've had a light shined on that with COVID, but I'm not going to let that go because it's true in diabetes care and it's true in HIV care and it's true in (laughs) climate health and so many other things. So equity is really a core pillar of what I want to address, but then issues related to climate health, firearm violence, mental health, Mm-hmm. opioids, HIV, all of those are really top of my list. And finally, Dr. Walensky, is there a metric or perhaps maybe there are several that you believe will be true indicators that as a nation, we have a solid handling on coexisting with the coronavirus as it relates to mitigating the spread and that we're doing this on a consistent basis? We have a vaccine that works incredibly well. It's not foolproof, but it works really quite well. And it might not work quite as well in Omicron, but it's still going to work well, I believe. I can't become numb to 1,200 deaths a day. I refuse to become numb to 1,200 deaths a day. Um, I refuse to become numb to footage of, of overwhelmed hospital systems. And so those are the things that I'm specifically looking at every single day. Spoke with Dr. Carlos Del Rio, someone you know. Uh, recently, and he talked about this pandemic truly won't be over because it will take a global effort. How do you see the United States role in being the leader in that so we can have the, the WHO officially declare the pandemic over? You know, if people are looking for the day that the pandemic will end, I, I think that I, we can't mark the day right now. Um, but I think Dr. Del Rio ex- is exactly right. It's been said, and I will say it again, no one is safe until everyone is safe. And as long as we have circulating virus, that and a lot of it, we give it permission, we give it a red carpet, in fact, to mutate. And as it mutates, it has the power to potentially evade our vaccines and our, our treatments and our therapeutics. And so in that context, it's our responsibility to ourselves and to the rest of the world to protect the rest of the world as well. The nation's 19th director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, headquartered, of course, here in Atlanta, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. For those of you with a social media account, Imagine getting a Facebook friend request from a debt collection agency or getting a direct message on Instagram that reads, hey, you, let's talk about a payment plan for this gas bill that's now in collection. It could happen. Debt collector debt collectors now being able to contact you through social media. What does this mean? What are collectors rights and limits? And what are you, consumers, what are your rights? Lots of questions. Let's bring in April Kuhnhoff. She's staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. Counselor, welcome. Happy holidays. 
and thank you so much for having me. Let's begin here with how all this came about, because first, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau plays a big role into this. And I think we need to let our listeners know what is their what, what is their duty in, in this bureau? Yeah, so this agency was created fairly recently uh, by the Dodd-Frank Act after the last mortgage crisis to try to protect consumers in uh, financial products and and intended to be the counterpart to agencies that are designed to protect you from harmful consumer products like a toaster or something Mm -hmm. like that that this is designed to protect you from financial products that might blow up and harm you uh, financially or harm your uh, future financial ability. And for some folks listening, because they may not be aware of this, so let's back up. Debt collection agencies, are they allowed to contact you in any other way besides through the mail or through phone calls as of right now? Yes. Yes, as of right now, The regulations, these new regulations that were issued under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is a federal law governing debt collectors, says that debt collectors can contact consumers via email, via text message, via social media direct messages, um, and, you know, potentially through other electronic channels that either aren't specified yet or, or things like chat. Uh, like a web chat or something mm-hmm. like that, if, if the consumer and debt collector wanted to use that. So, you know, these rules, the the Federal Fair Debt Collection Practices Act was issued in 1977. So it didn't talk about email or text message or mm-hmm. direct messages. And these regulations, for the first time, talk about debt collection communications in these electronic uh, formats. Well, now comes some new rules about in terms of debt collectors, not just that they can contact you, but how they can contact someone. So what should folks listening now before they all run out and leave and, and turn their social media accounts into private or either just come off altogether? What should they know about these new rules? Because there are some new rules that sort of set limits for debt collectors, correct? Yes. So. The rules, you know, we can talk about what they say about different types of communications, but in terms of social media, the rules say that debt collectors cannot post publicly on your social media. So, you know, your Facebook timeline, uh, your Twitter feed, they can send you a direct message via the private messaging platforms in, in those different social media platforms. And they can also seek to join your network. So a friend request from Facebook, for example, the debt collector does have to disclose that it's a debt collector. And it also has to include instructions about how you can opt out. So opting out of future uh, direct messages. Well, you know, let me ask you this, Counselor, because some, some of us have some very I don't call them simple names, but simplistic. I mean, there could be a thousands of Rose Scotts. There could be thousands of Sam Whiteheads, th- those are, these are my producers, thousands of Daniel Razels and Kevin Rinkers out there. So are there any protections? They just can't send out some blanket. They may have the wrong person. Yeah, so that's an issue that be, we've been really concerned about with uh, something like a, a Facebook communication where you are really just looking up somebody's name and, and trying to message them and you can end up with uh, a message going to the wrong person 
And so the federal law, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, does say that um, communicating with a third party is a violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. So if, if somebody else is getting messages that are meant for you, you can have a claim against the debt collector under this Fair Debt Collection Practices Act for a violation of your, your privacy rights there. Wow. The voice here is April Kuhnhoff. She's a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. And we're talking about how debt, coll- debt collectors, debt collectors, what a D, BT, are now able to message someone through social media. But there are some concerns because how can the consumer, what protections do they have against perhaps fraud or someone trying to scam them? You know, how do you know that this is actually from a, a, a debt collection agency? Yeah, I, I, that's another area we're absolutely concerned about electronic messages, making it easier. We know there are scammers out there who are pretending to collect legitimate debts. They call people up right now and um, sometimes they threaten people. They might say, oh, you better pay us or the police are going to come and arrest you or immigration is going to deport you. Um, and and they call and they scare people and they try to scare you into making payments. And um, so we're worried that some of those scammers are going to move into electronic communications and using electronic communications to uh, as a cheap and easy way to communicate with people and trying to reach more people. I've already gotten my first scam debt collection email. And so I I think that we'll see more of these. And I think that some of the things to just uh, as advice for people are don't click on links. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you never know who this is. If you think it's a legitimate debt collector, look up the name of of this entity that's supposed to be contacting you and and try to do some, some research, look up. If your state licenses debt collectors, try to see if this is a name of a debt collector that's actually licensed in your state. Um, so try to find out more information. And, you know, it's not urgent. You can always take time and research. So don't feel pressured to respond immediately. I have a, a, a question from a listener who wants to know, wants me to have more clarity here. Can the consumer... Is there a way to opt out of even having, even if someone makes that first initial contact, then can there are protections they can say, look, this is not the way. I'm not giving you permission to contact me this way. Please do it via maybe an email or letter or a phone call. Yeah, that's a super important question. And one of the really important things that these regulations clarify is that consumers have the right to set limits on what type of communications they want to receive. So the consumer can say, don't call me, don't email me, don't text me, don't send me direct messages. And uh, the consumer can do that, you know, in writing, the consumer can do that over the phone. And if the debt collector continues to contact you in, in that way that you've just told them not to contact you, again, you can have a claim under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act to uh, against the debt collector for violating your rights. But you know each electronic communication has to have information about how to opt out in it. But you can do this for phone calls as well, even though the phone call doesn't have that information in the phone call, you still can say, don't call me anymore if you'd prefer not to receive debt collection phone calls. And when will this take effect or has it already taken effect? 
It has taken effect. So uh, the end of November, November 30th, uh, the new rules took effect. So this applies to debt collectors, though. So only companies that purchase the debt from, from the original creditor or who are hired by the original creditor to collect. So if um, you know your credit card company is itself calling you, then they are not bound by these regulations, although they have separate laws and rules that, that govern their collection. And often they follow these federal rules that apply to third-party debt collectors too. Any other concerns that you all have other than, obviously we talked about you know fraud and, and, and scams, and particularly as we always talk with our senior community, our, our senior uh, folks as well, because they seem to be targets of of, of, of cyber crimes and, and all types of scams. What other concerns do you have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we haven't talked about some of the call limitations. So the new rules do put a cap of seven attempted calls in a seven day period. So First, we think that's way too high. And, and second, um, we're really concerned because that's per debt and collection. So for anybody who maybe has multiple medical debts in collection, that could then be you know seven times three or times five or however many medical accounts you have in collection. And that's really gonna ramp up really quickly to an overwhelming number of, of calls. You mentioned and at the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act, and you meant, but is it how long overdue are we then as a nation in terms of updating what collectors can and cannot do? And are we finally to a place through your lens now, uh, and someone who works in this space, are we to a point where you think it is fair or it still leans heavily toward the debt collector? Yeah, unfortunately, these new rules uh, fell uh, significantly short of what we were hoping for. Uh, we were really hoping for some more robust uh, consumer protections, such as requiring consumer opt-in before any electronic communication happened, um, protecting consumers from really old uh, time-bar debt or zombie debt, uh, which can still be collected, unfortunately, under these rules. And um, really ensuring that consumers who do opt in to electronic communications can actually receive those communications. We're really concerned. You talked about seniors, um, mm -hmm. seniors and, and others with less access to uh, email and other electronic communications might miss debt collection communications, for example. Counselor, you mentioned the term zombie debt. And for folks that may not be familiar with that, we're just talking about a, a very old debt that, I mean, that could be decades old. Yeah, so this is a debt that is beyond the statute of limitations. And so, you know, if your statute of limitations on the debt is four years or six years, this might be a 10-year-old debt. Or I, I this summer saw an email about a 15-year-old debt. And again, um, with email, it really makes it easier for, for debt collectors to go after these old accounts, even if there's a pretty low chance of them getting paid. If even a few people pay, that's still money made for them because uh, it's so inexpensive for them to send out these email campaigns. And finally, April, as we wrap up, again, what do you want, what precautions are you suggesting for folks as it relates to Debt collectors contacted them on social media. 
Yeah, in terms of social media, I mean, if you do not want to be contacted via social media, I think certainly opting out, telling that, you know, re just replying and saying, stop contacting me, um, or even if you want, you could call and say, stop contacting me. Um, but just don't let uh, people you don't know join your social media circles because then you're otherwise going to give them access to private information about you know, where you live, uh, maybe your car, your home, other types of assets that they might pursue in debt collection. So um, be careful who you let uh, access your private social media network. Ah, some wise wor words there. April Kuhnhoff, staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. Thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have a link from our website about this segment to you all. Thank you so much. Good information. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. He's the only Sam Whitehead I know. So anybody else out there? I don't know. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast. Subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.